0: Welcome to Some Very Famous People You've Never Really Heard Of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of Part 2 of this presentation, There will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject. William Travis, David Crockett, and Jim Bowie, Defenders of the Alamo. Now let's continue with our story about the Alamo. In the aftermath of Travis's defiant response, some confusion set in among the defenders and Bowie himself wondered if the Mexican leadership might actually be still willing to avoid a costly battle. He scribbled a rough note of practical apology, indicating that the cannon was fired before any awareness of a possible truce and also inquired as to whether Santa Ana was interested in such an agreement. Whatever consideration Santa Ana might have given to such a request was limited by Bowie's signature combined with the embellishment God and Texas. Bowie's courier was brusquely told that the Texians' only option was unconditional surrender. Underlining the confusion among the leadership within the garrison, at about the same time that this courier left, another individual appeared with a message from William Travis, requesting a conference with any appropriate member of Mexican leadership. This individual, Albert Martin, did not even make it to Santa Ana's proximity and was informed by a Mexican colonel that the garrison's only acceptable course of action was unconditional surrender. This response also did not even discuss whether or not the prospective prisoners' lives would be spared, indicating that execution at the hands of Santa Ana was a definite possibility. Travis responded to this inflexibility by firing another blast from the 18-pounder, and the siege of the Alamo officially began. Literally overnight, the confusion over actual command of the garrison dissipated completely when Jim Bowie, his health having declined precipitously during the month of February, collapsed with what is today believed to be typhoid fever, most likely contracted from something he drank. Even Bowie acknowledged that he was too weak to effectively continue in any authority, officially placing his men under Travis's control. At this point, Bowie was so weakened that he had to be carried on a litter to a small room near the structure along the fort's perimeter, designated as the Alamo Hospital. On this day, the 24th of February, Mexican tactics became clear. They spent much of the morning constructing artillery batteries within 400 yards of the Alamo, but still out of range of any Texian rifle fire. Later in the day, they began a constant barrage aimed at random spots within the fort, damaging the defenders' gun emplacements, and reducing parts of the defensive structure to rubble. The garrison occasionally launched artillery of its own, but the meager supply of ammunition forced a limited response. This barrage concluded at nightfall, and during this break, Travis decided to send another message, perhaps his most famous communique, ostensibly to Governor Smith and the provisional government, but also an open letter to the American people That might generate a groundswell of overwhelming support. Its rhetoric certainly emphasized both the desperation and courage of a determined group of Americans attempting to hold out against all odds. Addressed to, quote, to the people of Texas and all Americans in the world, it read, I am besieged by a thousand or more of the Mexicans under Santa Ana. I have sustained a continual bombardment and cannonade for 24 hours and have not lost a man. The enemy has demanded a surrender at discretion. Otherwise, the garrison are to be put to the sword if the fort is taken. I have answered the demand with a cannon shot, and our flag still waves proudly from the walls. I shall never surrender or retreat. Then I call on you in the name of liberty, of patriotism, and everything dear to the American character, to come to our aid with all dispatch. The enemy is receiving reinforcements daily and will no doubt increase to three or four thousand in four or five days. If this call is neglected, I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his own honor and that of his country, victory or death. February 25th brought an actual infantry assault on the garrison itself. During the night, Mexican troops were able to conceal themselves in the shacks and huts in the vicinity of the Alamo walls. Approximately 300 Mexican infantry attempted to use this cover to inch as close as possible to the fort before the garrison opened up, demolishing this ramshackle refuge. During this barrage, a half-dozen defenders emerged through the main gate. Using torches, they ignited the thatched roofs of these dwellings, succeeding in completely eliminating the strategic position and allowing the sharpshooters on the walls to repulse the Mexican attackers. Although encouraged by this success, February 26th brought more visible reinforcements and batteries that were now even closer to the walls of the Alamo. Although Fannin had already received one message from Travis, he hesitated before actually taking any action. Finally, on February 26th, with over 300 men and all of his artillery, he began to march in the direction of San Antonio. He didn't get very far before one of his wagons broke down, giving the relief column an excuse to halt. A delay that ultimately turned into a joint decision to suspend the mission and return to Goliad. The official reason centered around a lack of any appropriate food to feed the detachment en route to the Alamo. Unofficially, those in command of the group reasoned that even if they made it to San Antonio, they would make little difference against thousands of well-trained Mexican infantry. By February 28th, Fannin and his men were safely back in Goliad, behind the walls of their own outpost, Fort Defiance. Both Travis and even Santa Ana expected that Fannin would at least attempt to reinforce the Alamo. Now even this faint ray of hope was completely diminished. The weather was also not doing the defenders any favors. The notorious Texas northers were unrelenting, cold blasts of wind from the north that only added to a lack of any kind of consistent rest for the garrison, which made the mistake of not sleeping in shifts, a decision that left everyone exhausted. At least the 1st of March brought 32 men from the town of Gonzales. Way more determined than their counterparts at Goliad, they snuck through the ever-tightening cordon of Mexican infantry, Completely encircled the Alamo any other relief was waiting to rendezvous with Fannin at the town of Cibolo, Texas, per his initial instructions sent before he called off his mission and returned to Goliad, unfortunately neglecting to inform other commanders of his change in plan. The men from Gonzales would be the last reinforcements the garrison received with February about to end and still no sign or even word from Fannin. Travis needed to find out what was holding him up. On the 27th of February, he sent one of his ablest and most determined men towards Goliad, penetrating the Mexican lines, no longer an easy endeavor. James Bonham was able to reach Goliad on February 29th, only to be told by Fannin of his decision to stay at Fort Defiance. Fannin was even more determined to stay put after hearing of a Mexican attack on the Texas town of San Patricio, in which any captured Texians were brutally killed by a separate detachment of the Mexican army. Bonham then headed to Gonzales, only to arrive after this town's unit had already left. Warned in Gonzales that the Alamo was now completely encircled by Mexican troops, and accessing the fort would be impossible, Bonham responded, I will report the result of my mission to Travis, or die, in the attempt. By March 3rd, after exploiting a gap between two Mexican artillery batteries, Bonham was safely back inside the Alamo. Travis now knew that Fannin wasn't coming, and that afternoon additional Mexican reinforcements, a sizable enough contingent that was clearly visible from the garrison walls, pushed Santa Ana's troop total over 2,400 men with 10 cannon. This artillery, with some batteries as close as 200 yards from the Alamo, spent much of March 4th pounding away at the outer perimeter of the fort destroying walls and improvised fortifications. Santa Ana was now planning the inevitable infantry assault on the edifice, enjoying a manpower advantage of 12 to 1. Contemplating the inevitable, Travis dashed off a few final letters, one to the man in eastern Texas, David Ayers, who was taking care of his son, Charles. After four years, Travis's wife had long given up on Travis sending for her and their two children. She had previously delivered Charlie to Texas and divorced her husband. Travis now contemplated never seeing his child again, asking heirs to take care of my little boy. According to a female eyewitness who survived the battle, Travis, on the evening of March 5th, convened the entire garrison during a lull in the shelling, informed them that help was not coming, and they could either surrender, stay and fight, or try and escape. Some accounts actually have him taking a sword and drawing a line in the sand and proclaiming that he intended to stay and fight, and anyone who cared to join him should step across this line. All but one man allegedly stepped over the line. This individual named Louis Rose of Nacogdoches left the fort that night and successfully escaped through the Mexican lines. Today, the story has been refuted by some as histrionic embellishment, but it still endures as a central part of the Alamo legend. As the night of the 5th progressed, Santa Ana began to implement his preparation for the assault, now scheduled to take place at 4 a.m. on March 6th. Four columns of infantry, 1,800 men in all, would strike the northeast, northwest, east, and south walls. Most of these men, 700 in all, would attack somewhere along the northern wall of the garrison. 600 men would remain in reserve. 300 cavalry would remain near the east wall on high ground to observe and destroy any attempt to break out and escape from the fort. Throughout the early morning of the 6th, Mexican troops quietly made their way to assigned positions in the vicinity of the Alamo. Inside the fort, most men were settling into their first night of uninterrupted sleep since the beginning of the siege, a deliberate tactic on Santa Ana's part to suspend shelling, hoping to catch the defenders by surprise. At 4 a.m., Mexican troops awaited the sound of the bugler, who would signal the order to commence the attack. But the hour came and went with no such entreaty. Santa Ana was hoping for some moonlight. Instead, it was dark and cloudy, and he waited until the first light of dawn at 5 a.m. to order the attack. Intense shouting arose from the Mexican lines, cries of Viva Santa Ana and Arriba accompanying the advancing lines. The Texians were supposed to have at least a few sentries stationed outside of the wall to sound the alarm. But these individuals, probably asleep, were immediately killed before they could sound any kind of alert. Only the sole night sentry inside the fort heard the advance and warned the garrison before racing to Travis's barracks, "Colonel, the Mexicans are coming." Dressed in his clothes but without the uniform that he ordered, but did not receive in time, Travis rolled out of bed, grabbed his sword and shotgun, told his slave named Joe to follow him, and ran to the battery in the center of the north wall. In the chaos before the defenders responded to the alarm, Mexican troops were already collecting at the base of the wall, attempting to place scaling ladders against the side of the fort. Too close for any effective Texian artillery, the men on top of the wall were reduced to firing down at the attackers, Travis included was able to unleash both barrels of his shotgun into the huddling mass before a volley from the Mexican infantry was sent in his direction, hitting him directly in the head. His shotgun fell over the wall and the momentum of the shot spun him down the dirt fortification around the battery. He landed in a sitting position, mortally wounded, Joe immediately fleeing back to the barracks, hiding until the battle was over. Each of the four columns met heavy resistance, the first surge repelled by grape shot, shrapnel, cannon, and rifle fire, most Texian sharpshooters working with four loaded weapons at a time. As this first wave retreated and reformed, the men defending the walls were able to reload. A second attack began. Again, the infantry surged forward, this time the three columns now one disorganized entity that was able to reach the base of the wall again. Now, with no scaling ladders, the attackers were at an impasse, vulnerable from shots from up above. Again, after suffering heavy casualties, the second wave was repelled. Santa Ana observed the confusion and lack of success and ordered his reserves into the battle. This third surge coincided with another attack on the south side of the Alamo. The fourth column is yet unsuccessful but with sheer numbers eventually able to overwhelm the defenders and seize the battery at the southwest corner. Simultaneously, a mass of infantry had merely resorted to climbing up the north side of the fort, soldiers picking their way up the timber, reinforcing the Alamo's limestone exterior. Despite numerous casualties, this third attack eventually established a toehold that only expanded, infantry now sweeping into the fort's central open area, eventually linking up with Mexican troops who finally overwhelmed the south wall. The defenders had prepared for this moment, most retreating back to the barracks and rooms in the Alamo's perimeter. Fortifications had already been prepared, blocking doors and making access difficult, gunfire hitting anything that approached these dwellings. But now the attackers had control of the various batteries on the walls of the Alamo, and they methodically turned this artillery on the fortified barracks. One by one, this resistance was mopped up, an artillery round destroying the external fortifications. Infantry then sent in to kill any remaining defenders. At last, only the iconic Alamo chapel was still viable, and the defenders were eventually vanquished, James Bonham among the dead in this area. All that was left was the slaughter of any remaining men, which included Jim Bowie, practically delirious, covered with blankets in his small hospital room, where he was soon discovered and bayoneted. Even boys as young as 12 years old were unhesitatingly killed, although women and younger children were spared. As the battle became hopeless, several Texians did attempt to make a run for it, but they were no match for the cavalry that swooped down upon them, quickly dispatching these unfortunates with a saber, or running them through with a lance. At 6.30 a.m., 90 minutes after it began, the gunfire ceased and the Battle of the Alamo was over. There was some additional activity when several defenders were taken prisoner or were discovered hiding under some mattresses in the barracks. Initially saved from execution by the immediate Mexican officer on the scene, they suffered a gruesome fate when presented to Santa Ana himself. When asked about clemency, he became indignant. Have I not told you before how to dispose of them? Why do you bring them to me? The general's own escort then set upon the men with swords as their commander walked away from the carnage. In his official report, Santa Ana deliberately overestimated the number of Texian casualties, asserting that over 600 defenders were killed and underestimated the number of Mexican casualties at 70 killed, 300 wounded. Today, it is accepted that 182, perhaps 183, is the probable number of Americans killed with Mexican dead at 200 and an additional 400 wounded. Because Santa Ana's medical resources were minimal, many of the wounded also eventually perished. Some of the Mexican casualties were buried in a local churchyard. Many were merely tossed into the nearby river. Confusion about the exact number of American dead is the result of possibly Santa Ana allowing one local Tejano family to actually bury its relative killed during the battle. The other Texian defenders were placed on three separate pyres, stacked with wood, doused with flammable liquid, and burned over several days, the ashes left behind for over a year. Actual Texian survivors of the battle are estimated at anywhere from 14 to 19 individuals, almost all of these women and children, as well as a few slaves. Santa Ana quickly and deliberately sent Susanna Dickinson, the wife of killed defender Almiron Dickinson, in the direction of the town of Gonzales. The Mexican commander knew that this woman would emphasize the dreadful fate of the garrison, and he wished to strike fear into any other Texian forces in the region. He also sent Travis's slave, Joe, who was captured after the battle, to spread the word that any captured slaves would be immediately freed. Joe promptly disappeared. Within days, Mrs. Dickinson would personally offer details of the battle to Sam Houston himself. While Santa Ana casually headed east toward what he believed would be an eventually similar destruction of both the Texian government in San Felipe, Texas, and any remnants of a Texian army, Fannin was ordered by Sam Houston to abandon Goliad and head east towards Victoria, Texas. He was pursued by another army commanded by General José de Uria, which originated in Matamoros and was proceeding directly towards Goliad. Fannin's typically sluggish retreat left him out in the open and resulted in a March 19th battle near Coleto Creek, only a few miles east of Goliad. Fannin's men successfully repulsed repeated Mexican attacks but suffered many wounded troops that they could neither treat or transport. The following morning, with another Mexican attack imminent, Fannin surrendered, with Urrea only promising that he would try to intercede with Santa Ana to spare any prisoners, although most of the Texians, who in a written agreement were officially categorized as prisoners of war, believed that they were to be pardoned. Any prisoners able to walk were sent back to Goliad, and within a few days, the wounded were returned there as well. Urea was intent on capturing Victoria, and he continued eastward requesting that his designated garrison commander at Goliad, Jose de la Portilla, treat the prisoners with respect. Despite Uria's subsequent written request of Santa Ana to grant clemency to the American commander and his men, Santa Ana sent a detachment of cavalry to Goliad with written instructions to execute all of the prisoners, including Fannin. On March 27, 1836, any able-bodied Texian prisoners were separated into three groups, in order to march in three different directions, away from Goliad. They were told several stories about helping to drive cattle or gather firewood. Within a mile of the town, all three Mexican detachments formed quickly into a firing squad and fired into the groups of prisoners, then bayoneted and clubbed those who were wounded. A small number of captives were able to escape. Many of the wounded remaining in Goliad, as well as Fannin, were executed on the same day and it is believed that approximately 340 Texians were killed during what became known as the Goliad Massacre. National and even international reaction to the savagery at both the Alamo and Goliad quickly energized both American outrage and foreign disdain for behavior that was perceived as inappropriately barbarous. Preoccupied with formally adopting a constitution that declared Texas an independent republic, in mid-March, Sam Houston began an organized retreat away from several Mexican contingents, most notably Santa Ana's. Some of the Mexican commander's original fighting force were deployed with URIA. Others were left behind to garrison several captured Texian towns or were killed or wounded at the Alamo, to the extent that by the time Santa Ana reached the San Jacinto River, his command numbered about 700 men. Disdainful of any Texian military capability, Santa Ana quickly surged ahead, attempting to locate and destroy what was left of Houston's men. On April 21st, having failed to engage with Houston by midday, Santa Ana retired for a nap, his unwitting troops camped in a precarious position, backed by a swamp and across a bridge that was subsequently destroyed, preventing any retreat. He assumed that Houston would continue to refuse to fight. Instead, the Texian commander, down to his most determined combatants and repeatedly admonished by other members of the rebel republic to stop retreating and attack launched a late afternoon surprise assault on the Mexican position. Charging out of wooded areas which concealed their initial advance, Houston's troops, shouting, Remember the Alamo and Remember Goliad, inflicted a lopsided 18-minute victory. Much of it spent massacring surprised and unarmed fleeing Mexican troops, over 600 killed and 700 taken prisoner. Santa Ana escaped for the moment. He was caught the following day hiding along the riverbank, dressed in a private's uniform and slippers. Only his stature as the de facto ruler of Mexico prevented his immediate execution. Houston eventually got him to secretly agree to persuade the Mexican government to recognize the Republic of Texas, as well as publicly agree to withdraw all troops behind the Rio Grande. The property rights of all American residents of Texas were also to be respected. Many Tejanos either fled with the retreating Mexican troops or eventually left the region, intimidated by the vast influx of American settlers who poured into what was now an independent state. Ultimately, within a decade, the Mexican War established Texas and much of the Southwest as American territory. What specifically transpired at the actual Battle of the Alamo remains in dispute. Travis's fate, decided in the first moments of the battle, is well known. Both his son and daughter died before the age of 40 of natural causes. Jim Bowie, too bedridden to participate in the conflict, is usually portrayed as heroically fighting off several Mexican soldiers with his oversized knife and pistols before being bayoneted. Most likely he was so ill that he could barely stand up and probably never made it out from under his blankets. While even some Mexican accounts have David Crockett inflicting dozens of casualties, many with his bare hands and a rifle butt, several eyewitnesses claimed he was actually captured alive and subsequently executed with the half-dozen defenders Santa Ana personally ordered killed only minutes after the battle's conclusion. Susanna Dickinson did say in several interviews, that she saw Crockett's mutilated body in the plaza after the battle, his distinctive fur cap lying at his side. Sam Houston emerged as the leading political figure in Texas, winning election over Stephen F. Austin as president of the Republic of Texas, and ultimately Houston was elected to the U.S. Senate. While loyal to the state of Texas, he personally opposed secession from the Union and died in 1863 before the end of the Civil War. Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana was able to return safely to Mexico, but had little support, his reputation ruined to the extent that the Mexican government proclaimed that any agreement signed with Texas was done so under duress, was null and void, and Santa Ana no longer spoke for the government. After exile to his hacienda in Veracruz, in 1838, French troops attempting to obtain reparations for Mexican property confiscated from French citizens invaded the port city. Desperate to repel the invasion, the government allowed Santa Ana to lead the military effort in opposition. Although the French government was able to impose a favorable settlement, Santa Ana was seriously wounded and his leadership and sacrifice increased his popularity, allowing him to once again seize power as a military dictator. More ruthless than ever, he restricted the press, imprisoned opponents, and raised taxes. An 1842 unsuccessful invasion of Texas also helped to increase opposition, which resulted in his overthrow, imprisonment, and exile to Cuba. Thinking that reinserting Santa Ana into Mexico would help to peacefully resolve hostility between the two countries, the American government assisted in getting him back into Mexico, only to see him once again at the head of the army resisting American territorial demands. The ensuing American invasion, known in the U.S. as the Mexican War, was a Mexican disaster the U.S. eventually expropriating much of the present-day American Southwest and once again sending Santa Ana into exile. Typical of the chaos in Mexican politics, a weak central government was overthrown in 1852, the coup organized by conservatives and the Catholic Church, intent on reclaiming property seized years earlier by more liberal entities. Once again in 1853, Santa Ana became the president of Mexico, a glorified figurehead who presided over a bankrupt government. So desperate to raise cash and fearful that the U.S. eventually would seize it without compensation anyway, Santa Ana agreed with the American ambassador, James Gadsden, to sell a substantial additional amounts of Mexican territory, land that today comprises mostly present-day southern Arizona. This transaction was considered so disgraceful by many Mexicans that it led to the final 1855 overthrow and exile of Santa Ana as well as confiscation of any of his property. Santa Ana spent the next two decades attempting to make money as an entrepreneur and businessman. His most notable venture was attempting to introduce the substance known as chickle as a substitute for the materials used by American wheel manufacturers. This natural gummy substance did not catch on until an American inventor named Thomas Adams, after purchasing Chickle but failing to produce any type of rubber equivalent, observed Santa Ana chewing the material, a habit dating back to the Mayans. Adams incorporated it into a recipe that added sugar and flavors like licorice and produced the first American chewing gum, the licorice flavor known as blackjack. Adams would be even more successful with another chickle-gum variation introduced in 1900, known as Chicklets. Santa Ana did not have any involvement in the venture's success. In 1864, when France again launched another military adventure in Mexico, Santa Ana schemed with both sides unsuccessfully to get involved, eventually also attempting to raise money in the U.S. for his own army. All such efforts failed, and he spent the next seven years in exile in Staten Island, New York, and various Caribbean islands, now poor and obscure. In 1874, nearly blind, 80 years old, and of no political consequence, he was permitted to return to Mexico, where he died two years later. Today, most of the former Alamo complex has been swallowed up by downtown San Antonio, The only remaining structures are the former Mission Chapel, familiar to most Americans, and part of the long barrack with two small courtyards in between. However, the distinctive oval roof line over the front entrance of the chapel building was not added until 1849. Initially, after the Texas Revolution, the military used the chapel as a warehouse. Other parts of the complex were used by private interests for commercial purposes. The chapel eventually reverted back to the Catholic Church, who sold it to the state of Texas. Not as historically recognizable, the Long Barrack area was almost demolished before efforts in 1905 by local philanthropists ensured that any remaining structures were preserved. The administration of the grounds was handled by an organization known as the Daughters of the Republic of Texas. Unfortunately, this group was utterly dysfunctional, prompting fights with the Texas state government and lawsuits among factions within the group. By 2011, the state took the step of passing legislation to remove the administration of the Alamo site from the DRT and transferred it to an agency within the state government. Plans for a massive expansion and construction of a much larger visitor center have stalled over expense and the usual culture war bickering over what exactly the site should memorialize. A scaled-down, supposedly temporary museum recently opened, exhibiting among other items extensive memorabilia donated by Phil Collins. The musician claims a lifelong fascination with the Battle of the Alamo. Developed as a British five year old after seeing Disney's Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. <music> Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about the Alamo. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Three Roads to the Alamo by William C. Davis and A Time to Stand, The Epic of the Alamo by Walter Lord. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and also rate us on iTunes. If you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.